0: Today at Reader's Corner, Tom Wheeler, acclaimed author of the new book, Tech Lash, Who Makes the Rules in the Digital Gilded Age. I'm Bob Kuster. Welcome to Reader's Corner. On today's program, former FCC Chairman Tom Wheeler joins us to talk about his new book, Tech Lash. Praised by Ken Burns as one of the foremost explainers of technology and its effect throughout history. Tom Wheeler turns his gaze to the public impact of entrepreneurial innovation. In his latest book, Tech Lash, he connects the experiences of the late 19th century's industrial Gilded Age with its echoes in the 21st century digital Gilded Age, revealing how new digital technology has changed commerce and culture, creating great wealth in the process, all while being essentially unsupervised. Tom Wheeler is a businessman, venture capitalist, and former chairman of the Federal Communication Commission during the Obama administration. He is the author of several books, including most recently, From Gutenberg to Google, The History of Our Future. Tom Wheeler, welcome to Reader's Corner. Oh, Bob. It's great to be with you. Well, as I said to you before we went on the air, this book is imperative for folks to get uh, their hands on and read. Um, I've been troubled for some time that these big tech companies, uh, seem to be unregulated, can do what they want, make their own rules. Uh, but I'm not going to give away your book because that's what your book's about. So let's start with the basic question. The Gilded Age of the late 19th century and early 20th bears some resemblance to today's Gilded Age of tech giants. Could you, uh, Tell us what's similar about them, and I guess most importantly, what's really different about them when it comes to either regulating them, breaking them up, or whatever it might be.
1: Well, it's a great question, Bob, and and it's what frankly got me started um, on this whole exploration that ended up being um, the book. Uh, If you look at the original Gilded Age and today, just look at the things that we have in common. Um, There was new technology, that was driving new products, that was creating new economic behaviors, that was accelerating the pace of life, creating monopolies, destroying small businesses, creating great wealth disparity, generating consumer harms, and even generating fake news. And you look at those and you scratch your head and you say, oh my goodness, you know, <laughs> it was it, it was Mark Twain who coined the term uh, the Gilded Age, and we all recall that to gild is to paint with gold something which isn't to make it appear what it is not. And he thought that that was a good description of, of that era. But he also had a phrase where he said that, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it occasionally rhymes. And it seems to me that there is a real rhyme between the experience of the original Gilded Age and today's digital Gilded
0: Age. Why don't the same remedies the reformers used in the original Gilded Age, like antitrust law that is simply breaking up the big guys like Teddy Roosevelt did with Standard Oil, in the second decade of the 20th century. Why doesn't that work for the digital age?
1: Well, it is important that we have antitrust enforcement. There's no question about that. Um, And I make clear in TechLash how important that is. But we can't rely on competition laws for everything. For instance, you can't deal with consumer privacy rights in an antitrust action. You can't deal with fake news in an antitrust action. So these actions are really important to make sure that, that there are not monopolies that destroy competitive markets and the innovation that those competitive markets bring, but they are not in themselves sufficient. Uh, and that's why I propose that we need the creation of a new federal agency with digital DNA to focus on the other issues that digital technology has delivered.
0: Now, in order to do that, and so many other things that you recommend here in your book that we'll talk about shortly, uh, it's going to take uh, the work of some representative assembly someplace, whether it's in the states or in Congress. We hope, of course, that it's in Congress. But usually when a Congress is about to act on something, they're looking over their shoulder to see where, where their folks are. Uh, how do my people feel about this you've You've got some polling numbers in your book about this kind of support for regulating big tech. There actually is in the polls, don't you?
1: Oh, absolutely, and I mean I think that there, it is clear that Americans are not happy with the status quo and the power of big tech to make their own rules. That can infringe on the rights of those Americans and the public interest writ large. Um, so this is a, this is a very potent political issue, I believe.
0: And just to make sure that we understand the role that major platforms like Google play in the dissemination of fake news. Again, there's two there's two sides to this, but one is the privacy issue, and then there's the issue of of fake news uh what is the percentage of advertisements funding that fake news or let's call them well what you call them low credibility sites from google ad servers alone how much advertising is going out to those kinds of sites
1: well it's a it's kind of a hidden reality that most people don't see that google's business is selling ads not only on their services google search and youtube and and things like this but also They sell ads for everybody else. And their ad sales platform becomes the money machine for all of the fringe websites that keeps them alive. And they have every right in the world to do this. You know, I'm a capital C capitalist. I I believe that capitalism is the best allocation of resources. But what we need to have are guardrails that says, okay... Here's the definition of responsible capitalism. And that's what we saw finally towards the end of the original Gilded Age, and it's where we need to be moving today.
0: I, I mean, I, some of the numbers in in your book just floored me. Uh, almost three-fourths of all advertising revenue goes to digital media, and of that, half of it is controlled by Google and Facebook. I mean, that, that really tells you something there, doesn't it?
1: Well, they are clearly dominant platforms. And one of yeah. the fascinating things about the way in which digital technology works uh, is that – well, let me, let me back up. I have a chapter in the book called This is Not the Fourth Industrial Revolution. And if we expect that, that digital technology or digital markets behave in the same way as the industrial markets did – then we're making a big mistake. And if we build regulation around that model, then we're condemning ourselves not to protect consumers, not to protect uh, competition, and more importantly, not to create an innovative environment, which we need to have so that we continue to see new ideas. The, the, The problem was that industrial era regulation was rigid sclerotic micromanagement, and that kind of regulation won't work in the digital era, which is why I propose a new model.
0: So when it comes to the problem, uh, before we get to the solution, you have a chapter called Closing of the Open Internet, which I think really deals with how big tech targets the preferences of users and the news itself. Uh, talk, Talk to us about that.
1: Well, you know, we have this fabulous internet, which was built on the basic concept of openness. Anybody can get on and reach anybody else. And then the big dominant platforms came along and closed that openness and said, no, you can only use me if you agree to my terms, which lock you into my walled garden. And that does several things. So, 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 Bob, I want you to picture what I call the digital virtuous circle, where you start off with the fact that your privacy and my privacy and our listeners' privacy has turned from something that was their private information into a corporate asset. And that's the key of the business model. But then... They hoard that data, the companies hoard that data so that they can control the marketplace. Because if you can't have access to data, which is the capital asset of the 21st century and what everybody needs to offer services, if you can't have access to that data, which is being hoarded by the company, then you can't compete. And then the third part of that virtuous circle is that if you can't compete then the person or the party the company that owns the data that controls the market then controls what goes goes into that market and goes over those services and then when you click on that it creates new data which starts the whole process again so we're in a uh, it's like a hamster wheel <laughs> where once <laughs> right. you lose your private information then it begins to feed all of these other negative kinds of activities
0: you're listening to Tom Wheeler he is the author of Techlash who makes the rules in the digital gilded age so you mentioned corporate the corporate asset the the pri- the information that these companies get on us when we go online and then it's converted to something you call a corporate asset and the the technique or the way in which they do this is through something called AdWords. And help us understand just, just how AdWords is used to make this corporate asset a very sound financial investment for advertisers and, of course, lots of money to be made by Google or Facebook.
1: Well, AdWords was a product developed by, uh, by Google um, in its early days. Um, in which they identified what it was that you, Bob, were interested in by your behavior on the web and would associate advertising with that so that in the previous advertising environment, uh, if you lived in an apartment, you still saw advertisements for gutter cleaning even though it wasn't yeah. the problem that, that you had. <laughs> um, but with AdWords and other targeting capabilities, you say, okay, well, Bob lives in an apartment, so that's not the right thing to send to him. So this, was a, this, was the, this is the holy grail of advertising, if you will. What is it that pulls Bob's chain? What is it that uh, appeals to his interests and his prejudices and, um, and let's make sure that he sees that. And it was, as you suggest, a great money-making tool. And the amazing thing is that what happened was that this distant company and, and all of the dominant online players, these distant companies who captured your information, and turned around and leased access to that information so people can target you, ended up gnawing away, if not destroying, local businesses that you used to depend on. And I don't care whether that is is the, uh, the local five and dime or the uh, local newspaper um, because of the fact that news feeds can target you what you want to see and they can sell advertisements to it, then advertisements in the local newspaper are less interesting or of less value. Mm. And that's why we see, for instance, the decline of this important American honesty factor of local news. Mm. But it all goes back to, okay, Bob, what is it that I know about you? Because I know everything about you. And I'm going to use that information to target you. And I'm going to sell that targeting.
0: You know, I'll speak only for myself on this next question, Tom. But as I've been watching the media over the last few months, few years, who knows, um, I hear a lot of concern about artificial intelligence. I don't hear as much concern about the privacy issue. Um, and, And you have a chapter on that. And I, I must say that I've never spent that much time thinking about artificial intelligence as a problem. But I want you to explain for our listeners, uh, and they can get this when they read the book, a specific generative artificial intelligence. Chat GPT is, is what we're talking about here. And uh, explain the pizza in the VCR. I, I read that thing and could not believe a machine could possibly have simply come up with this answer, but I'll let you explain it.
1: Well, artificial intelligence has been with us for a long time. Um, I mean, it prices your airline seats. <laughs> um, it recommends books to you on Amazon, you know, et-, et cetera. But the change that has happened recently is with what's called GPT, generative pre-trained transformers, which moved artificial intelligence out of the back room where it was overseen by people who were computer nerds and coders, Mm -hmm. Um, and I mean that positively, Um, and and all of a sudden, you and I can chat with the machine because they figured out, how to take our natural language that you and I are speaking right now and have a machine respond to those inquiries. And so, the, the example that I use in the book <laughs> is um, I mean, it was, it was when the scales fell from my eyes, and I, and I really <laughs> understood what was coming on here that, that Chat GPT was asked how to deal with a peanut butter sandwich stuffed in to a VCR and to do it as though it was in the language of the Kim James Bible. And it produced this absolutely fascinating response. (laughs) Um, And one of the most interesting things to me about chat GPT, and I use it frequently, is that, you know, unlike you go on Google or something like this and you, you ask a question, and the answer comes up all at once. This literally comes out on your screen word for word, almost as if you're watching it think or almost as if you and I are listening to each other. And and it has an incredible capability to, um, to look into all of the data that has been created, that they have trained their software on, um, and to be able to respond to your English language, or for that matter, French, or Spanish, yeah. or whatever, from a computer. And it is it is a huge step forward. And the interesting thing is it's just the beginning of where we go from here. Mm-hmm. But one of the key points I think we need to make sure that everybody understands, Bob, is that how we deal with artificial intelligence is very important. But we haven't even dealt with with the basic issues of the digital era, such as privacy, such as competition, such as truth and trust. And all of those issues are what feeds artificial intelligence. And all of those issues are actually made worse by artificial intelligence's ability to manipulate that data and feed something back to you.
0: So you say we haven't dealt with them. That's true. But as you point out in your book, others have, like the European Union, the UK, and China. Uh, Let's just focus on the European Union for a moment, because I think they may have made the most progress on this subject. Uh, Share with us what's going on elsewhere when it comes to people realizing there is a need for some kind of regulation here.
1: Well, the European Union has enacted um, three, going on four, major laws. One had to do with Privacy, what's called the General Data Protection Rule, GDPR, which has kind of become a worldwide standard. The second is the Digital Services Act, which has to do with the content that gets distributed. The third is the Digital Markets Act, which has to do with competition. And the one that they're about to address is the Artificial Intelligence Act. And what is disappointing to me, and I write about in the book, is that the United States of America, which has been a long-time leader in technical policy development, is AWOL. That um, we are not, you know, it's the, old, it's the old expression of where you stand depends on where you sit. Well, we don't know where we sit on these important issues because our government has yet to speak. And in that kind of a vacuum, Others step in, whether they're the European Union, the United Kingdom, China, whomever. And human nature is that you define those rules in just a way that just happens to tilt a little to your advantage. And I don't think that that's that's not the historical role that the United States has played in the world. And we have abrogated our leadership by the fact that we have abrogated our responsibility to act.
0: You're listening to Reader's Corner. My guest today is Tom Wheeler, acclaimed author of the new book, Tech Lash, Who Makes the Rules in the Digital Gilded Age? Well, let's get to something you've mentioned a couple of times in uh, our conversation here. Uh, You wrote an article with some others entitled New Digital Realities, New Oversight Solutions in the U.S., and that's where you recommended what you've already mentioned, the Digital Platform Agency. Uh, You suggest in the book that what we need here is a different kind of regulation, if you want to even call it that. We need enforceable behavioral standards in the design of digital platform services. Help us with that one, Tom. What does that mean?
1: So, you know, Bob, one of my challenges when I was chairman of the FCC is that I was trying to interpret digital developments with a statute that was written in 1934, before television was even around, okay, <laughs> and um and and so what we need is we need to have um, an overhaul of how we look at the digital market that reflects the digital market. So let me go back. The, the kind of regulation that we have become used to is an outgrowth of the industrial era, where we oversee the companies in a manner that clones how those companies oversaw their workers, right? I mean, think about it. The guy on the floor, and he was a guy on the factory floor, he followed a rule book. He was overseen by a supervisor who was overseen by a manager, and And we're surprised that we end up with a rules-based bureaucracy. Um, and, And the problem is that that kind of structure is rigid, it is sclerotic, and it is micromanagement. And that's the way that may have worked in the industrial era because that was how industrial management was carried out. But it doesn't work in the digital era because digital management is just the opposite. Digital management is all about transparency, all about risk assessment, and all about agility. But the problem is that we haven't imported those kinds of digital management techniques into our oversight of the companies that are using those techniques. And we're stuck with these old rigid micromanagement uh industrial era concepts and not only does it make it hard to protect consumers and competition but also that kind of rigidity is anti-innovative and one of the things we want to make sure we do is that yes we protect consumers yes we protect competition but yes we also want to encourage innovation and that means that the manner in which we oversee these companies has to be different from what we've seen in the industrial era.
0: Don't the companies oftentimes use the word consent as their reason for using our data? Uh, you point out in your book that that's really not enough. And I, I must add here that I don't know how many times I've entered into some kind of an agreement or a contract, and, and they give me three or four pages of print I can hardly read. And at the very bottom, they ask me to sign it, and I do, admittedly, without reading much of it. <laughs> so I think this is what you're getting at here, but I'm not sure.
1: No, you're absolutely right. I mean, <laughs> when you stop, when you stop and think about it. Um, before you can use a digital platform, you have to consent to having your privacy invaded. And I don't mean just your privacy in terms of, well, what are you looking at on that platform? But what are you looking at on other platforms and every place that you go on the internet? And then, oh, by the way, let's look at where you are physically because we're tracking your cell phone data. And that has all been justified on the fact, well, you know, they consented to this. You know, the lawyers call that a contract of adhesion, that you have no choice but to agree to being abused. And so we need to get away from that smokescreen that the companies are hiding behind this. thing. Oh, well, Bob gave us permission to do this. Bob didn't have any choice. And Bob couldn't read, you know, seven <laughs> pages of small type legalese to begin with. Right. And, and so what we need is, is a set of behavioral standards that say this is the way companies are going to handle your private information. They'll yeah. use just as much as they need for instance, mm-hmm. they won't save it um, and open up, return some basic privacy rights to you.
0: You've done a fine job of distinguishing between the privacy issue, the likes and dislikes that I might have about products that I'm looking for online. And then, of course, that's factored into which direction they're going to send me. But it gets a little scarier when you start talking about social media algorithms that actually deliver news content that's designed, as you say, to agitate and stimulate tribal prejudices. In this particular case, you do recommend a couple of specific actions which come out of a very old, what, 1923 newspaper editor's code yeah. of conduct? Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
1: you know, it's really interesting that, uh, you know, we go back, we began by talking about the similarities between the Gilded Age and and the digital Gilded Age. Um, and, and one of them, uh, it, as I said, was fake news. You know, you had press barons like William Randolph Hearst and Joseph Pulitzer who would print lies, just flat out fabricated lies, because they knew that if they could enrage the population, they could sell more papers. And if they could sell more papers, they could charge more for advertising. Oh, my goodness. Doesn't that sound like what we see today on Facebook and other social media platforms. It's called Enrage to Engage, because engagement holds the user to, and every moment that you're on, they're collecting information from you. And it allows them more time to sell advertisements to you to deliver advertisements to you. And so what brought yellow journalism to an end was a fascinating thing that the editors of these yellow journalism newspapers did was they banded together. They formed the American Society of Newspaper Editors in 1922. And in 1923, they came out with a code of conduct. And the first item on the code of conduct was tell the truth. And um, the difference between now and today is that it was those editors who were making the decisions about what went into the newspaper. And they had a moral compass. Today, what you see on your social media feeds is decided by algorithms. And algorithms are soulless. (laughs) They have no moral center. And so what we need is a set of guidelines that say, just like the newspaper editors said, this is what is considered to be fact. We're, we're seeing this today with what's going on um, uh, with Israel and uh, and Gaza. The huge uh, disinformation effort that is being run. And there is a need to have some kind of an ability to say, okay, this is from a legitimate source this is not and you should judge it accordingly you know to his credit mark zuckerberg did that leading up to the last presidential election and um and they rejiggered the algorithm so that it favored credible news sources like npr like like the new york times like cnn over some of the fringe sites and that was the responsible thing to do leading up to the election. Immediately after
0: the election, they undid that, and we all know what the results of that were. So wh- where where can we go in Congress, uh, in the current Biden administration, to find people who are really focused on this right now and give us some hope that, it, that it's going to be addressed? It, it, are there individual members of Congress? Uh, there is a Klobuchar committee, I think, that is dealing with this, but... Her last book was called Antitrust. And, uh, again, that's not the solution you suggest uh, is going to fix this.
1: But I want to be clear that, you know, Senator Klobuchar's efforts to improve the antitrust laws are spot on. Yeah, right, right. just not uh, it's just not a the, the, the only thing that needs to be done. Yeah. So it was it's interesting, Bob, because um, I'm at the Brookings Institution now, and we had a discussion about this with Senator Michael Bennett from Colorado and Senator Peter Welch from Vermont, both of whom are sponsoring legislation that would create the kind of digital platform commission that I talk about in the book. So the, answer, the So yeah. the good news is that this is something, there is legislation in the Congress, and it's, it's getting increasing awareness, and AI is driving
0: that awareness as yeah. well. That's great. And by the way, both Senator Bennett and Senator Welsh uh, have endorsed your book with very nice comments uh, about it on the back cover. Again, I want to remind our listeners, this book is TechLash, Who Makes the Rules in the Digital Gilded Age? This is absolutely a must read. Tom Wheeler, I want to thank you for writing it. I want to thank you for joining us today at Reader's Corner and having such a great conversation about something so important to our digital future.
1: Bob, it's great to visit with you. Thank you for your
0: interest. Reader's Corner is presented by Boise State Public Radio News. The engineer for today's show is Eric Jones with production by Joel Wayne. I'm Bob Kustra. Please join me next week as we talk to today's leading writers about the ideas and issues that help shape our world at Reader's Corner. new year life kit wants to help you succeed because everyone needs a little help being
1: human it can seem so overwhelming you're not alone who can i commit to being
0: if you want to do something then just do it just take that first step great advice every week listen to life kit from npr